We're in the middle of a series here at Riverside uh, called Living Life Well, uh, where all of this year we are looking uh, in all our gatherings and groups and things like that at some practices that Christians have used down through history to help them get to know Jesus better so that we can live life well. We've produced these guides. Uh, there may be one or two available uh, at the back on the way out. If not, they're on our website. You can download it. Uh, do jump in. And we've looked at, uh, already looked at um, integrating periods of silence and solitude into our lives so that we can spend time with God in the busyness of life. And today we continue looking at prayer. And we've been uh, reflecting on this quote, uh, which, if you like, gives a perspective on how the Bible understands prayer. Because some of us will have a wrong view of prayer, that prayer is a bit like sort of the genie's lamp, that if we just pray in the right way, just say the right words, rub the lamp in the right way, magic will happen and get all our wishes. That's not how the Bible understands prayer. This, prayer gives, this quote gives a helpful perspective on how the Bible understands prayer. Prayer is not something we master, but it's an act that forms us. A friendship we deepen, a practice that frees us. Prayer is good news, something that frees us. And so uh, many of us have been asking, how do, we want, how do we integrate prayer more in our lives? We long to pray. Some of us may not, sure, may not be sure whether we are Christians, uh, but we've begun to try prayer or we're not quite sure what words to use, but we want to pray. Others have been following Jesus for many years, but if we're honest, prayer is not kind of our heartbeat. It's something we do occasionally. How can we pray more? And some of us have a... Uh, kind of a tendency to look to other people to inspire us, people in history. And today I want to illustrate that by showing us somebody who you may have heard of, Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a giant of Christian history. Uh, you may know him. Uh, he's, not, he's been dead several hundred years. You probably don't know him, but you know of him. And here is somebody who bravely and at great personal cost stood up against the church of his day, against the false teaching that was going around the church and the wrong practices in which you, they were teaching that you could buy forgiveness. He stood up to the powers of his day and showed through the pages of the Bible that salvation cannot be bought, but is a gift by grace through faith in Jesus. Kicking off the Reformation, which our Christian tradition and all of the Western world's Christian tradition is founded on the Protestant Revolution 500 years ago. A key figure, a giant. And yeah, like many people of his day had some troubling views on a few things, but he is in many respects the one on which us, we stand on his shoulders, all that we've learned. The Bible we have written in our own languages as a result of people like him. The church, the Protestant church, the Church of England and all of that is as a direct result of people like Luther, a giant. And one day when he was asked what he was doing the next day, this is what he said. Tomorrow I will work, work from early till late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. A giant of Christian history with so much to do changing the world, he knew he needed to spend the first three hours on his knees. 
And we look to stories like that and go, wow. But we also go, whoa. (laughs) Three hours on our own, let alone three hours in prayer, is tricky. For many of us, three minutes is a stretch. And so we think of people like Martin Luther and what's meant to be an inspiration is a crushing burden, a weight. And so it's good to also remember something else Martin Luther said. This is what he wrote in a letter to his closest friend. And I prefer this, Martin Luther. Your high opinion of me shames and tortures me. Since, unfortunately, I sit here like a fool, hardened in leisure, pray little, do not sigh for the church of God. In short, I should be ardent in spirit, but I'm ardent in the flesh, in lust, laziness, leisure, and sleepiness. Already eight days have passed in which I've written nothing, in which I've not prayed nor studied. This is partly because of temptations of the flesh, partly because I'm tortured by other burdens. How many prefer that, Luther? (laughs) The one who with the reality of life and temptation, prayer is a battle and a struggle. The giant who changed history, eight days, he says, not praying, not reading the Bible. I'm guessing, but many of us find us more similar to Luther, the second one. But we long to be the first one. And so it raises a question for us that we'll explore this morning. How then can we enjoy prayer? Not be like the man on the screen. How can we be people who pray not out of duty, not just out of responsibility, but out of joy? That prayer is our default go-to with joy in our hearts. And the Bible passage that we've read to us, this Psalm of King David many thousands of years ago, is a great help to us because at the end of the Psalm, we read these words. These are the closing words of Psalm 32. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous, sing all you who are upright in heart. In fact, a better translation is not just be glad, it's shout for joy. This is such good news that we can belt out joy. He's enjoying his relationship with God. Genuine pleasure, a lightness in who he is before God. And don't we, whether we would call ourselves a follower of Jesus or not, want that sort of thing, want that sort of joy, that lightness, that freedom, be people who shout for joy? But there's a burden that if you're anything like me, you notice other words in this verse. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. And once again, the crushing weight comes on because we feel we're not righteous. We're not upright in heart. Well, this psalm has good news for all of us this morning. Because those phrases don't mean what you think they mean, as we will see. That actually the righteous and those upright in heart are not holy Joes. They're actually the people who know the depth of their need of God. And this psalm uh, compares two different people which help us on our journey in prayer. 
Both of these people are King David himself, but there's a before and an after. There's how David used to live his life, and there's how he then now lives his life to discover that joy, that freedom, that peace, that wholeness, that oomph in life. And the psalm begins really clearly. Did you see it? Blessed. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are covered, whose sins are covered. Uh, transgressions forgiven, sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. That word blessed can accurately be translated happy. Not happiness because you've been to Disney World, but a deep-rooted happiness. Not to do with your circumstances, but a joy, a sense of real inner contentment and happiness. Happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. And he describes three different words for sin. Transgressions, sin, and sins. In other words, it's all-encompassing. So it's not just the direct rebellion against God, where, as it were, you stuck your V's up at God. But it's also the times where you've just kind of gone awry a little bit. And in fact, that word sin is the all-encompassing anything that is against God. Happy is the one for whom they experience forgiveness, which means your sin, your mess, your wrongdoing, whatever that is, whether it's the stuff you know or not, whether other people know or not, there is the possibility of forgiveness. And if we experience that forgiveness, happiness, joy comes in. But there's a key word. Did you notice it right at the bottom? Who's that forgiveness for? For those in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you want to know true enjoyment, true freedom, don't deceive yourself. And David says, because that's what I used to be. Look at the next verses. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. He's saying that basically there was this time where all of the depth of my need of God, I didn't own. I didn't fess up. I hid it. I kept silent about it. You could say, I tried to walk around pretending that I had it all together. I came to church and I had the look that says, I'm all right, but deep down I know what's going on in my world. When I kept silent, and look at the consequences of that silence, that not owning how weak he really is. My bones wasted away. My groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. When he doesn't own his sin, when he doesn't realize and fess up to how deep his need was, well, he feels it experientially. There's a physical energy lack. There's a weight of all strength gone, like in the heat of summer. You've got no energy, no oomph, you could say. And I wonder, not asking for a show of hands, how many know that? When we're singing the song, Stir a Passion in Our Hearts, it's because we know deep down for us, we feel this just... <laughs> if you could write that down. <laughs> now, it's important, just as a little side note, he is not talking about clinical depression here. And I just want to say in passing that if there are people here, for that is a reality for you or for people in your world, 
or has been at certain times and you know you know that it has comes in peaks and troughs that's not what he's been talking about and for those that have been told or have picked up a message wrongly that you could just pray it away think positive be free from that because this is not what he's on about we believe in praying for healing god in his amazing grace does sometimes do that Sometimes he doesn't choose to in the way we would like. We don't know why, but we're called to keep on pouring out our hearts as we will see to God. He's talking really about the spiritual kind of humdrum just, which we all experience from time to time. Joy is gone. And that's what David used to be like when he kept silent, when he didn't own just how needy he was. And here's the lesson for us, for all of us. You won't enjoy God if you take yourself too seriously. His issue was... He kept silent about it, whether it's because he didn't want other people to know or he didn't want himself to know because he'd been brought up, I can't be a failure, I can't be a failure, I can't be a failure. And so he's silent and as a result, he thought that was the way to wipe it out, but actually it kept on weighing on his shoulders. He refused to admit how messed up and weak he really was. There's a lot of talk at the moment about narcissism to do with a certain president in a certain country in the world. And you may remember the fable about Narcissus. Narcissus, the Aesop's fable, was so in love with himself that he knelt down by a river to look at his own reflection and was so infatuated with himself he fell into the river and drowned. A warning. If all we think about is me, it's not the pathway to right living. It's not the pathway to health. I love this cartoon where Narcissus gets a Valentine's card. <laughs> it's from me! <laughs> and the reality is some of us, we know deep down, we don't want to own up. And we can diagnose that in ourselves because of the way we're always quick to judge other people. When other people get it wrong, we're quick to pounce on them show them their faults. In a relationship, we tolerate other people's weakness so little and yet long for tolerance ourselves. We're quick to have grace for me, but yet when other people get grace, we say they don't deserve it. Quick to critique, quick to criticize, to point out what's right. Realizing sometimes we may think too highly of ourselves and for others of us, we're so in despair at our guilt that we always look down on ourselves and think everybody is better than us. Whereas here we realize all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because there's a Christian equivalent to this, I think. I saw this tweet a little while ago. I've wiped out the name of the person because many of you would know this, not know them personally. This person is a well-known Christian leader in the world. A couple of years ago, tweeted this, you were never called to be average. Uh, and I want to suggest, I, I don't know the motivation behind this, whatever, He's this person who tweeted it, great guy, all that. I want to suggest that King David would agree 
but perhaps not in the way the tweet was meant. Because I want to suggest that we aren't called to be average, we're called to be below average. In a culture that refuses to admit wrong, it refuses to admit weakness, always about success and strength, the people of God are called to be the people who say, I, along with Paul, am the chief of all sinners. I'm worse than you. Below average. Because look at what happens when David does that, owns his own weakness before people and before God. This is where he changes. Look, verse 5. Then... I acknowledged my sin to you and didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. When we come before God and fess up, there's nothing but grace and freedom and forgiveness. And you might say, well, that was King David. How do I know that's true? Well, in a moment, we're going to come to communion. We know it's true because the God of all universe gave his son to die on a cross for you and me so that when we confess our sin, we know there's nothing but freedom and forgiveness, whatever your sin may be. Joy is found, friends, in owning our weakness before other people and before God. I love this. Uh, quote from Michael Reeves, if your prayer life's a bit ropey, I suggest starting again by stammering like a child to a father. Cry for help. Don't try to be impressive. And so once we've experienced that forgiveness, when we know there's nothing but open arms from God the Father welcoming you, what happens? Well, this is what David says. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you might be found. Because as we pray and we come to him in utter weakness, owning up, fessing up, we realize surely the rising of the mighty waters won't reach them. You're my hiding place, not my own strength. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance, not me and how impressive I am. It's when we are weak, we discover God's strength. Friends, this is good news in case you hadn't got it already. This is good news that in a culture of strength and success and wanting to change the world when we can't change ourselves, there is a God who welcomes us with open arms. And so, what does King David say to all of us? Well, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my loving eye on you. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have got no understanding but must be controlled by bit or bridle or they'll not come to you. What he's saying is don't be like the animals that have to be dragged kicking and screaming to God. Be free and just go to him all the time, God, I'm weak. Because there's nothing but grace and forgiveness. You may know my father-in-law is a farmer in Lincolnshire. And a few years ago, there were these big floods. You may remember there's heavy rain, flooding, loads of farmers got their lands flooded. And one of uh, my father-in-law's friends had lots of acres flooded. So much so that one of the tractors got stuck trying to kind of pull some machinery out. That tractor got stuck, so they had to get another tractor 
to come and pull that tractor out of the mud. And do you know what happened to that tractor when it was pulling out the other one? It split in half when it was trying to pull out the other tractor because it was so embedded in the mud. David's illustration is like that. Don't be so stuck and adamant in your strength that it does you damage because you never go to the one who's welcoming you saying, come, be open about your weakness. There's forgiveness and grace and freedom. I love this quote from author A.J. Sherrill. The practice of prayer is always an act of surrender, a confession of inadequacy. To not pray then is to say to God, I've got this. And how many of us, if we're really candid, would say we've got anything in our lives? Prayer is the natural response to say, God, I, I haven't got this. My future is in your hands. I have no idea how it's going to pan out. My relationships, God, there's so much need. I've got no idea. So I come to you humbly because I'm so weak, God. And I find arms wide open of welcome, embrace, and love. So how, as I come to a close, how practically might we do this? I just want to share something personal um, over the last few years that I have learned. Many of you will have learned this before, but it took me a long while to learn it, a bit dim like that. I grew up in a background, which I don't think this was ever taught, but I grew up believing that prayers that were written down, what some people call liturgy, some people call other things, were somehow not as honest as kind of spontaneous prayers in my own words, because they're the kind of prayers where it's just out naturally. And both kinds of prayer are beautiful, great, and all that, biblical, all of that. But in recent years, probably with age and probably with tiredness, I've come to find a deep joy in prayers that are written down already. One author puts it like this. When she discovered for the first time praying using words that were already written down, she said, I simply gave myself to the beauty of words that expressed deep longings and powerful praise that were true in me, but I'd never have found the words to say. Instead, this is the powerful bit for me, instead of getting caught up in my ego's attempt to say something profound to God and to the people around me, I actually rested from all that and prayed. There is a profound freedom if you're struggling in prayer and using other people's words because it realizes you don't have to be impressive, just be you. And so one prayer that we have mentioned in this booklet, as a simple way that I found very helpful, I know many, many others do as well, is something called the Jesus Prayer. Some people refer to it as the Jesus Prayer. It's basically a mixture of a couple of prayers from the Bible, one of which is the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know that story that Jesus tells. And it's a rhythmic sort of prayer that you can pray again and again and again and again. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you're into running or if you're into cycling or, and you commute to work, whatever it might be, you can say it again and again and again. It sort of forms it. Run, when running and cycling, it actually kind of goes with your rhythm. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you pray it again and again. And what happens, you may well find, is as you pray this again and again, you begin to pray in a very different way. 
That certain people come to mind and say, you say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us, we're sinners. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us, we're sinners. And you begin to think about certain situations in it. This kind of prayer is more about, Lord, have mercy, rather than I've got all the answers to sort out this problem. Lord, have mercy on me, have mercy on us, we're sinners. And so there's simply a suggestion this week to try praying this. To set aside a few times each day and to pray it again and again and again for a few minutes. And you might want to say it out loud or if you can't do that, just in your head, whatever it might be on the way to work during your lunch break, when you first get up, making some baked beans, whatever it is. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A posture of utter weakness and yet profound dependence on the Father who welcomes you with open arms. And as I close, can I say something about this posture? We want to be a church that reflects and transforms our city. And in a culture in which we can't admit weakness, where no politician dare say they got things wrong, how transformational it is to be a community of people who are really open and honest before each other, and before a dying world, that we've got so much brokenness. Why? Because there's so many people in our community who do not know where to go with their weakness and end up beating each other up, because I can't admit weakness, so I've got to destroy others, or overwhelmed by despair because they've got nowhere to go that is full of hope. Maybe, just maybe, we can be a thriving community in which we're known as people who really treat ourselves so lightly because we know we are sinners in need of a saviour. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner.